Thank you, worship team. Let's open the Word of God, please, to Acts chapter 11. Acts 11, verse 19. The labels or the titles that are used to describe people, places, or things can be very important. And this is especially true because different people can describe the same person, place, or thing using very different titles. And the titles that individuals use for themselves and for others reveals a lot about their attitudes and their point of view. Um, think about George Washington. George Washington, father of our country, the first president of our country, one of my personal favorite uh, human heroes, uh, in my opinion, is clearly one of the greatest patriots and freedom fighters in human history. But in 1776, King George of England and 98% or more of the population of the vast British Empire would never have described George Washington as a patriot or freedom fighter. What might have been some of the labels, and no profanity, what might have been some of the labels uh, the loyal British subjects might have said about George Washington? Can you think of one, Steve? It's a terrorist. He's in modern lingo. He's a traitor. He's a villain. He's a renegade. So, yeah, and you can think a lot of... So, uh, somebody said one man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist. So, my point is the labels or the titles that people use can be very important and uh, they show you your attitude about uh, who you're describing today. And our passage, we're going to think about the title Christian. We're going to see the origin of that title. And uh, I'm going to speak in light of the fact for the past uh, 10, 15 years or so, maybe more, some of the more trendy uh, Christian celebrities out there who speak from pulpits or who organize and lead parachurch circles have not really liked the term Christian. And they're kind of punning it away to use other labels. And I think that's very unfortunate because the reality is this title Christian that was hung on us by our enemies in Antioch uh, is both, by its very nature, a title of spiritual honor and a title of spiritual insult. And I think we ought to carry both without being ashamed of, of the implications of being identified with Christ. Uh, let's pray for uh, our teachability, pray for the teacher, and let's pray for those who serve and protect us, uh, including our active military. Uh, our peace uh, officers, and our firefighters, okay? And so, uh, Danny, do me a favor and pray in those directions, would you? Amen. Thank you. Uh, Mitchell Mania, too, has started. I didn't realize James was going to, on the skating rink. I hope he brought his skates, but uh, I guess the good news is uh, I may be able to use this top five list in two weeks if, I mean, when we get back from Puebla, uh, so he can see it, but uh, top five reasons James Mitchell is a world-class youth minister. He can tap dance, play the accordion, order pizza, and teach the Bible all at the same time. That's not easy. Number four, he relates well to middle and high school students without dyeing his head. I was going to say dyeing his hair. Uh, and I'm one to talk about hair, right? Uh, without dyeing his head orange or having his nose pierced. And there are very few youth ministers out there that do that anymore. He's married to one of the top five women of the 21st century. I need the points with Shauna, so I'll definitely repeat that. Number two, he can actually witness effectively to middle and high school students without having to use gospel tracts in the shape of $100 bills. Hey, people, you can do the right thing for the, the wrong ways. And I've actually seen these things. So you're supposed to go to like the state fair and thumb on the ground, hoping people, hey, hundred dollar bill, ah, gospel tract, you know. I want to go to church now, you know. It's, it's not going to work, man. 
And the number one reason James Mitchell is a world-class youth minister, James has the guts needed. You listening, Ron? James has the guts needed to minister in the shadow of the amazing, overpowering personal charisma of Ron Miller, our interim youth minister. Yeah, so it goes downhill from there for the next 42 minutes. So, um, you know, the book of Acts is, uh, we're going through the story of the book of Acts. It's like reading about uh, colonial American history. Only we're seeing the very first uh, years of the church. And the uh, book of Acts has 28 chapters, and we are in the middle of chapter 11. And so it's kind of hard to get a big synthetic awareness of the whole book, Connie, unless you've got some kind of way to... Uh, control the material. So this uh, memory device, Jesus is alive as head of his bride, is what we're trying to use. So let's review what we've seen so far in the book of Acts as we uh, prepare to look at the middle of chapter 11. Chapter 1, Jesus is alive as head of his bride. J, Jesus ascends, ascends to heaven. Christ dies for our sins on April 3rd, 33 AD. He rises from the dead uh, three days later on Sunday, and then Forty days after that, he ascends to heaven. Uh, e, establishment of the New Testament church. When did that happen? Ten days after the ascension, right, Savannah? The New Testament church starts, the Holy Spirit starts a whole new thing. If the pulpit is the life, death, resurrection of Christ, in the Old Testament, they were given promises about a coming Savior. They were saved by grace through faith in the promised Messiah. Now we're just barely on the other side of the cross, the New Testament church starts. And for those of us on this side, we're saved by God's grace through faith in the provided Savior, right? But the church starts as distinct from Old Testament Israel in Acts chapter 2. What happens in Acts, in Acts chapter 3? Yeah, the salvation of a lame beggar who's been well known because he begs outside the temple in Jerusalem, and that would have really been uh, very noteworthy to the entire city. Uh, chapter 4, what do Peter and John get as a result of healing the lame guy, the beggar? Uh, yeah, they get kind of roughed up and held overnight and told, don't you mention Jesus to anybody. And Peter just says, look, we can't stop, so you'll know. Uh, chapter 5, sin in the church. The only thing worse than outward oppression is uh, a lack of integrity inside the church, and it hurts us, Ananias and Sapphira. That's where we first meet uh, Barnabas in, in the lead up to that. So that's the first five chapters. And chapter six is what? Got to think of my man Mike and David, influence of devoted deacons. We've got a food fight. The ladies are not happy with the way the food's being served. The apostles are told, you got to fix it. And they said, yeah, we'll, we'll take care of it, but we've got other things we've got to ha- keep our hands on. So we will, uh, raise up the first set of deacons to take care of feeding the widows. Chapter 7, Stephen stoned to death. He's the first Christian martyr. And the narrative talks about uh, there was a man who was heartily in favor with the stoning of Stephen, who kept an eye on the cloaks of the uh, ruffians that were throwing the stones, and his name was Saul. We know him as Paul. He'd later write 13 New Testament books. Uh, Chapter 8, and... uh, Jack, I'm thinking about changing this, but uh, abroad with Philip, and we see, uh, because uh, you know, Jack interprets it differently than some of us do. Uh, yeah, so the gospel's getting out of the city of Jerusalem in part because, in large part, because of the persecution. Uh, so that's chapter 8. Chapter 9, life comes to Saul. Uh, on a business trip to kill Christians in Damascus, he sees the light literally and he comes to faith. And it takes him a while to rethink uh, the whole Old Testament, but uh, once he kind of gets his theology straightened out, uh, watch out, and we'll see him mentioned again today. Uh, I stands for impartation of salvation to Cornelius, the Roman centurion. First time we've got a concerted uh, effort by an apostle to preach Jesus to Gentiles, not Jews. And that kind of blew a lot of Jewish people's minds back in the home church because they thought, hey, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. So obviously, dirty Greco-Roman Gentiles must convert to Judaism as a prerequisite, as a uh, necessary uh, precondition of believing in the Jewish Messiah. But as the New Testament clearly teaches Zane, 
Yes, Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. Jesus was the one the Old Testament prophets promised, but he's also the Savior of the world. Both, not Anne. And so Peter, clearly led by God, goes to Caesarea, the Roman capital of the region, shares with this uh, Roman centurion, his family, and some of his friends. And those are the first Gentiles as a group that come to faith. And then in the first part of chapter 11, which we saw last week, Peter has to explain and uh, verify the fact that these people really were uh, believers in Christ. And then uh, just to finish the Jesus is alive, chapter 11, we're going to see the execution of James. I mean, Stephen was stoned to death, but now we're killing apostles. The idea that, you know, if you love Jesus and do the right thing, nothing bad will happen to you is totally unbiblical. Read uh, the end of Hebrews 11. By faith, the heroes did all kinds of great things. And he says, but others were killed, sawn in two, tortured, men of whom the world was not worthy. Uh, we're not given an escape hatch from the horrors of the world. And there are some uh, scars we can suffer on earth that cannot be healed this side of heaven. And talking to my man David just now, uh, he came to faith as an older guy. And you're not old yet. He's five years younger than I am, so he's quite young. But uh changes your, your whole worldview. Okay, let's look at our passage, verses 19 through 26. We're going to see the origin of the church in Antioch, a very, very strategic church, as it turns out, for the rest of the book. It'll be the launch pad for all of Paul's missionary journeys. And then we're going to see the first year of the church uh, briefly summarized. Let me read those verses to you, and I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. So then, those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen, we're still getting the ripple effects of that, made their way to Phoenicia, just uh, north of Israel, and Cyprus, the island there on that side of the Mediterranean, and Antioch. The city of Antioch was either the third or fourth largest city in the Roman world. Rome was number one, Alexandria was number two, Ephesus and Antioch had almost the same population. So uh, those were the two uh, uh, golfers that tied for third, as it were. But it's a huge city, over half a million people. And no notice this. Initially, these folks who were spreading out were speaking the word to no one except to Jews. We're still dealing with that issue. Do we have to convert them to Judaism before we can tell them about Jesus' issue? That's still working its way through the system. But, verse 20, there were some of them, especially men of Cyprus and Cyrene, Cyrene's a city in northern Africa, uh, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks, to the Gentiles, also preaching the Lord Jesus, preaching this Caruso, urging them to see with the eyes of faith and believe in the Lord Jesus. And guess what? The hand of the Lord was with them, preaching directly to Gentiles, just like Peter has emphasized in chapter 11, and he did in chapter 10. And a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Then it goes on. And the news about them, Gentiles in large numbers coming to faith in Antioch, about 150, 200 miles north of Jerusalem in Syria, not in Israel. Uh, the news about them, the work and the converts, reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch to check in with the church, and to check on the church. What's going on up there? Uh, then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, the clear reality of these Greco-Romans and some Jews too, who've come to faith in Jesus Christ, had their lives radically transformed spiritually, he rejoiced. That's just the way he is. He's always looking for the half-full part. Remember, Barnabas is the son of encouragement. Uh, and we had to tell Ken the bad news. We had the big... We had the big pre-meeting for the Puebla group. Had all seven show up, which is, that's a small miracle right there. And uh, we believe in miracles, right? And uh, I told them the bad news. There's no pouting in Puebla. No pouting in Puebla. So he told me he's getting as much pouting out now before he leaves uh, to be out of the system. But uh, Barnabas was a guy who didn't pout and didn't really permit a lot of pouting. And uh, he just sees the fact that they're, uh, these people are really believers, and he's just excited. Uh, look at verse 
24. Luke just can't hesitate but tell you about Barnabas. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers on top of those who already had come were being brought to the Lord. And so much so, he needs some help. So he left for Tarsus, which as we'll show you on the map, isn't very far away, relatively speaking, to look for Saul. He's the guy, remember, that was converted in chapter 9 very miraculously. And when he, Barnabas, had found him, Saul, he brought him to Antioch, and for an entire year they met with the church and taught. Tadasco isn't Caruso, please believe. It's, this is what Scripture says about Jesus. This is what Jesus did. This is what Jesus said. Believe it and apply it in your life, Christian. And they taught. That's the number one base ministry of the New Testament church, according to the New Testament. It's not trendy anymore to do exposition, but that's what we've always done for 2,000 years. Uh, and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Okay, the origin of the church in Antioch. Look at verse 19 again. Uh, the gospel proclaimed to many new locations, including the city of Antioch. So then, those who were scattered because of the persecution were moving our way out of Jerusalem, out of Jewish territory, into Gentile territory, uh, that had occurred in connection with Stephen, made their way to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, but they're only speaking to Jews, this initial wave of them. Okay, this is the eastern Mediterranean, and there's the land tract called Canaan, or Israel, and there's Jerusalem, where all the good stuff happened. But now we're going to be in Antioch, and he mentions a couple of locations here. He talks about Cyprus. Phoenicia would be the area right here. Boom. Uh, Cyrene is right in there, northern Africa today. So we're getting a spread in the direction of Antioch, one of the biggest cities in the ancient world, very significant city, very significant place to have a Christian presence. And now look, um, we've done some archaeology, not, you know, not me personally, of course, but this is a kind of a bird's eye view of the archaeological site. Very large city, real places, real people, real events. I'm not making it up. Boom. Yeah. Now look at verse 2021. 20, so we're getting out there, moving that direction, but only Jews are being presented. But whoa, the, the, the reality that the New Testament church is bigger than Old Testament Israel is the fulfillment and the ultimate expression of Old Testament Israel is actually starting to work its way in the system. But there were some of them spreading out with the gospel, men of Cyprus and Cyrene. Yes, go to Cyprus and Cyrene. Cyprus is that island. And I tell you what, I, you can't believe this, but it really happened. Uh, like One of the times I got to be in Jordan, I got on the plane in Amman. I thought we were going back to uh, Paris and then home. But we actually went south to Aqaba, which is off the map. And then on the, and then the sun came up and we flew across the Mediterranean right through here and we went over Cyprus and we were high enough and I had just the right angle at the window and I could see that entire island, uh, you know, from small, you know, but it was amazing. It looks just, that's a kind of a schematic drawing of that island, but if you've kind of seen that, it's got a very distinctive shape and it's really, really an amazing place. Yeah. So keep going. So, uh, some of them, are speaking the Greeks too. And they're just preaching directly to the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, just like the hand of the Lord was on Peter when he preached the gospel to Cornelius the Gentile. And a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Which one did they do? Believe or turn to the Lord? When you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you turn to the Lord. When you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you change your mind about your sin. You got it. It's your fault. Yourself, you can't fix it in your Savior. He's the only one who can. You can't believe without repenting in that sense. You can't believe without turning. So these aren't different steps. These groups want to make everything 18 steps, you know, and it's just one thing, right? That's important. Okay, that's kind of the introduction, the origin of the church in uh, Antioch. Now, let's look at the first year, verses 11 through 22. First, we're going to see the apostles in Jerusalem send Barnabas, as I say, to check on and to check in. I'm sure they want to know what's, what's, what are they doing up there, right? It's one thing to have a family in Caesarea, Cornelius and his family and friends, maybe 15, 25 people, but now you've got, in one of the biggest cities in the ancient world, you've got apparently hundreds of new converts, and what in the world are they doing, right? What are they saying? What are they saying about us? You know, people wonder about stuff like that. 
So they send Barnabas, look at verse 22. Uh, the news about them, the believers, especially the fact a lot of them are Gentiles, and they continue to be Gentiles, they haven't uh, converted to Judaism, submitted to circumcision and things like that. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem. Now the younger generation says, big deal, obviously somebody just sent them a text, right? It was a little bit more complicated than that back then. Uh, and they, the church in Jerusalem, headed by the apostles and the elders, sent Barnabas off to Antioch, which is great. Because Chris, guess what? In chapter 4, we were told Barnabas was from Cyprus, that island, not very far from Antioch, right? Cyprus is the island there. So he's uh, uh, called a Hellenistic Jew. He's a Jew from a, with a, with a Gentile uh, cultural background. And so he's the perfect guy because he's uh, just upbeat and he's kind of like Debbie Corbin, you know? Debbie Corbin, Gene Shalit, you know, they just look on the half bright side. I mean, the half full side. They always, they like Pastor Brad, like all the time. Most of you are kind of up and down, you know. You never quite know, you know right? Only your uh, hairdresser knows for sure, you know, kind of thing. You're talking, you're saying way too much to your hairdresser, I'm telling you. But, uh, but I don't get many haircuts anymore. I don't need them. But anyway, yeah, he's very positive, upbeat. His cultural background makes him a perfect guy for the job. So uh, they sent Barnabas to Antioch, and now we're going to see how he invests himself. He's not just punching his ticket, looking around, going home. He really embraces uh, the church in Antioch, and he loves it and loves them. And you got to love your church, man. You got to love this thing. We're trying to do the right thing. You got kind of, you know, you kind of limping with the pastor, but uh, we've got biblical basics that uh, are really out of this world. Uh, and we're not the only good church in Duncan. We're not even the best church for everybody in Duncan. But we're a good church, established track record, working on 40 years of doing this. And not me personally, but uh, it's all good. i uh, got to love it. So look what happens. Verse 23, he's going to come see and conquer, right? He's going to come and invest himself. When he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, witnessed these new Christians, it's like seeing you know, David comes to faith, and the first thing he does is start coming to prayer meetings. Man, that's a radical change. Because that's what, that's the night his favorite TV show's on. But don't worry, he's got TiVo, so he's not missing anything, right? Uh, yeah, when he arrived and witnessed the fact he got hundreds, maybe more, thousands of brand new Gentile believers who are excited about the Lord and want to know more, uh, witness the grace of God, he rejoiced. There's a big difference between joy and happiness, right? Rodina, happiness is based on your happenings. You can't be happy with a migraine migraine headache. The most spiritual person in the world is not happy when he or she has a migraine headache or a head cold or more serious issues, okay? Happiness is based on your, happen, on your happenings, your circumstances. Joy is more profound. It's the kind of the contentment of a soul that's resting in Christ. I call it the eye of the hurricane. You're not happy about the hurricane destroying your house, but when you're not in a hurricane, it's calm. You know, and you kind of deal with it as best you can. And you tie a rope and you hold on to it and you trust the Lord and uh, you keep on trusting and obeying the Lord even when there doesn't seem to be any good earthly reason to keep on trusting and obeying the Lord. That's perseverance. That's hupomene. So he, he's rejoicing. He's got real joy. He, he's it's an older guy. You know, I got a feeling, Nancy, Barnabas's knees may hurt or his shoulders may hurt. It's a long ride, you know, to, to Antioch. He didn't have a perfect life any more than any of us do. He's got issues, but he rejoiced because others had come to faith, and that's what he's living for, really. And then he began to encourage them. Parakaleo is the original word. It means to exhort a good coach. You know, a good coach sometimes kicks you in the rear end. Other times he pats you on the head. Uh, pastors who do that too much end up down the road, but we all try to do that a little bit, right? Parakaleo. With, so he began to parakaleo, encourage them all, all these new believers, with resolute heart to do what? To remain true to the Lord. That means real believers can stray and get away from the Lord. It happens all the time. Um, you know, it's just like anything else. I think uh, spiritual health is very much like physical health. I, I'm not a good example of this. I like to exercise. I don't like to eat the four food groups, unless the four food groups are chocolate, candy, potato chips, and Cheetos. It's, those aren't the four food groups. But, uh, you know, the four basics, five basics of spirituality, 
are Bible study, fellowship, worship, prayer, and evangelism slash world missions. And if you have a balanced involvement in that, and it's not mechanical, you're just looking at a list. It's relational because you're relating to the Lord Jesus, abiding in Him, recognizing and responding from the heart to the one who has saved you, who's your Savior and your best friend and your Lord and your Master, and you're doing it for Him. What does the Bible call those kind of good works, Olga? Yeah, good, good works when you're doing the right thing for the right reason. When you're kind of motivated that way, you're not going to get too far off the track. Now, you won't always be happy. You lose your job. You lose your dog. You lose anything that's important to you. If you break something, if you hurt something, Tommy... I got to see Tommy yesterday. So funny. Uh, he's, you know, he's got an obstruction and he's going to probably need to have uh, surgery to fix that. And he's ready. He wants, he, he wanted to have surgery yesterday. He wanted it yesterday because I've tried the, the non-operative options, but, uh, you know, they spent all Wednesday night, Thursday morning in the ER trying to get some help. And then they, uh, admitted him like 5 a.m. on Thursday morning. And, uh, you know, they didn't want any visitors. Tommy didn't want any visitors. Because, I mean, Tommy's cool. Okay? And he always looks good. But he doesn't look as, quite as good as he usually does right now. Uh, but, uh, and they didn't even want me to visit. I mean, that's, like, the rules don't apply to me, do they? I mean, I'm a pro- professional Christian, you know, full time. Uh, but anyway, uh, I was up here yesterday, and I, uh, I really wanted to see him. Because he's a very, very dear friend of mine. And I just, I sent Angie a text, not him. I said, <laughs> went to a higher authority. I said, uh, is, is Tommy up for a short visit? Uh, and uh, she said, yeah. But she said, I'm going to have to leave to do a couple errands. So there's a big sign on the front of the door and it says, no visitors allowed. And there's a nurse watching him like a hawk. So tell her I gave you permission. So I walked in there like I own the place, and uh, the door is slightly open. I hear him talking, so he's talking to somebody, right? His nurse, you know. So I walk in there, and she looks like I'm a terrorist or something, you know. Like, what are you doing here? And uh, he, she said to Tommy, "Do you know you know this guy?" He said, "I've never seen him before in my life." <laughs> now he didn't really say that, but the, yeah, the nurse looked like she was going to try to tackle me. And I had the text from Angie, and I said, look, and uh, I, I think she knows I'm a pastor, so I, I thought she might misunderstand this, but I just, I held up the text. I said, I got permission from a higher authority, his wife. So they, I got five minutes with him, and we prayed, of course, and talked a little bit. But yeah, uh, he's just really, really uncomfortable, and they, they tried a test yesterday to hopefully indicate they were not going to need to do surgery, but it looks like they're going to have to do surgery. And, and I haven't heard anything this morning. Oh, we're doing it now? Is that, is that the word? Or Yeah. You know something? Okay. But, uh, yeah, so happiness is a transient based on your happenings. And Tommy's not a happy boy right now, and he shouldn't be. How could you be? And the idea that we're supposed to just kind of smile and act like we're ecstatic, be happy all the time, because I got the joy, joy, joy. You can have the joy, 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 and just be stable. Joy is not a kara. The Greek word just has a range of stability to ecstatics based on your circumstances and your personality. I never get ecstatic about anything except when OSU beats OU. Other than that, that's it, man. Other than that, I just kind of deal with it, right? So anyway, he's rejoicing in their salvation and urging them to stay true to the Lord. And we all need to hear that. And that's one reason you need a local church because one stick's easily broken. Boy Scouts, they taught us that. Put a bunch of them lashing together, it's harder to break them. And uh, the world will just crush you, man. He'll steal your song. Plus, they're blaming us for all kinds of stuff now. We're, all, we're the haters and the source of all evil now. Uh, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And as Barnabas gets there, Barnabas, Barnabas gets the Antioch Bible Fellowship. ABF stands for Antioch Bible Fellowship, right? Um, can More people come. He just it generates a real positive spiritual uh, vibration there, and they're focusing on the basics. However, you got good news, bad news. With growth comes uh, need for some help. And it didn't take him long to realize, hey, I need some help here. And I'm going to, on my map there, I'm going to go to, to uh, Tarsus and find Saul. Now, you know, we, we talked about Saul going from Jerusalem to Damascus on the business trip to rest and kill Christians. And it comes to faith. 
But uh, what uh, we didn't go into, and Lord willing, in two weeks when we get back from Pueblo, I'm going to break down the chronology of all this, really Acts um, 9 through where we are now. But Saul mentions in Galatians that he goes down to Arabia and spends three years rereading the New Testament. Then he goes to Jerusalem. Then he goes back home to Tarsus. And uh, it's, it's several years. Uh, and we'll break down the exact chronology uh, in two weeks, Lord willing. But, uh, yeah, Barnabas has him in the back of his mind. And I think Barnabas is the kind of guy who says, man, Saul has so much to give. It, we just got to find the right spot. Talking about Tommy, a lot of people don't know this, but because he's such a dynamic worship leader, uh, for the first five or ten years I was here, Tommy didn't sing in front of the church. Uh, quite, he was raised Church of Christ. They don't use instrumental music. But I noticed at the end of potlucks and stuff, when there's a few people hanging around, he'd go to the piano and play, and sometimes even sing. And he didn't think anybody was listening. And what happened on that one was, the only reason Tommy is up there leading worship and doing all the great things he does, what got him over the hump is kind of what got Paul going, was a friend. You know, uh, um, Keith Nix. Keith Nix and Tommy were good buddies. Keith has a beautiful voice. Keith did a lot of solos and, and did worship. And he kind of uh, goaded, and goad is a bad word, but he kind of encouraged Tommy to come up and do like a duet with him one time. It was a huge deal. And Tommy got up there and, yeah, it was good. And it's obviously something, a gift God gave him to be a blessing to all of us. And he just kind of slowly, from that point, you know, got more and more involved. And now, if you see him, you can't believe, you know, that he was ever hesitant. But for whatever, but you know what? None of that stuff is wasted. God uses all that. And so Paul's kind of been, in our minds, in a spiritual holding pattern in Tarsus, his hometown, but now the time's right, and this guy, as you know, is going to write 13 New Testament books, uh, three missionary journeys we know about, probably one after the book of Acts, etc. But Barnabas is always thinking big picture. Where, and that, that's what Jenny's trying to do now with the women's ministry. Uh, and she's interacted with me with, uh, with some feedback she's gotten, and we both are saying, wow, it's so great. This person has so much to give, but they really haven't plugged in much, but it's maybe our fault. They didn't know about the need and the opportunities and stuff, so... That's the way it's supposed to work, and it's all about a team. It's not about just ladies watching Jenny do good things or youth watch James do good things and things like that. So he leaves for Tarsus, that is Barnabas, to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him back to Antioch to minister in the church. And for an entire year, they met with the church. That's the dream team. You want to have a pastor, an assistant pastor, that's really, really good. But you know what? Somebody didn't like it. I guarantee you. Somebody didn't like everything. But I think most of them probably really liked it. And you got uh, Pastor Barnabas uh, and Assistant Pastor Saul slash Paul. And they taught considerable numbers. They taught them. They taught them the scripture and taught them the apostolic uh, oral tradition that would be uh, later written down just within the next decade. I personally hold that Matthew's written very early for some uh, various reasons historically as early as 40, so they probably had a copy of the of the uh, Gospel of Matthew, and Barnabas and Saul rubbed shoulders with apostles, so they knew what had happened, but they didn't have a full New Testament yet. They, they maybe had one book, and that's about it. But here's the thing I want to camp on as we close here. Uh, the Christians are the disciples, and the word disciple, mathetes in the original, just means a learner or a student, right? And uh, in, in Jewish culture, uh, rabbis would all have disciples, but they didn't so much sit them down in a classroom and teach them systematic theology. They just kind of follow them around, listen to them teach, interacted with them. They learned by doing kind of thing. But the disciples, the believers that were visibly identified with Christ in the city of Antioch were first called Christians there. A couple of things you don't know, maybe, about the city of Antioch. Um, the city of Antioch is second to the city of Corinth in its very bad moral reputation. You know, uh, immoral girls in the Greco-Roman first century were called Corinthian girls, regardless of where they lived, because there were so many prostitutes and so much immorality in Corinth. And Antioch was very close second to that. So it was an odd place, humanly speaking. The church ladies would not have ordained much in Antioch. They would have left, you know, but... 
Uh, you know, Jesus uh, was able to interact with tax collectors and prostitutes, and he didn't compromise his standards, but he didn't give up a vibe like, you know, you're no good. Uh, he, he loves the sinner even though he has big issues with their sin. In fact, he's going to die for their sin. So Antioch is an odd place to get started. It's strategic because there's so many people there. But spiritually, it would not have been a place that was just waiting for spiritual light. You wouldn't think, but you find believers in some strange places and we're getting some good initial results, right, from that standpoint. Also, uh, early church history indicates that the, the, the guy you know as Luke, Luke wrote two New Testament books. Uh, can you think of one of the books Luke wrote? Yeah, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then the book of Acts is the second volume of Luke. We, we notice how the two books begin in a similar way, but the book of Acts clearly is a second book, second work to continue the story. Uh, according to early church history, Luke came to faith after Saul got to Antioch. Luke was a medical doctor practicing his... Uh, his uh, medicine in the city of Antioch, and he comes to faith. And then um, it's also, uh, this is church history, so it's not scripture, it might be right, it might just be a legend or something, but it sounds pretty solid to me. Uh, according to this tr- same tradition, when Saul leaves Tarsus to go to Antioch, that's when his family disowns him. You know, Saul grew up in a, with a bunch of rich people, he was a big shot. He lost all of that uh, when he left. This is a definitive break for him, kind of like the disciples leaving their boats to be full-time disciples. So this is a very strategic thing. But uh, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now, I don't know how they figured this out, but the historians, uh, secular and uh, uh, Christian, will tell you that the people in Antioch like nicknames, and most of the nicknames they gave were profane for people, places, and things. And so in their mind, this is not a, a title the Christians came up with, the believers, the disciples. This was put on them as a label. And in the same way King George III would have called George Washington free, a terrorist, they're calling the believers who have left the worship of Apollo and Aphrodite uh, and have embraced the true God, they're calling them Christians, probably because they all they talk about is Christ all the time. They're Christians. It's almost like a cuss word. And anything that with a, a guttural, a ch, is a really good cuss word. If you think about cuss words, most of them have a, that kind of a, a color. They're Christian, you know, and that's in just about every language there. Now let's talk about this. They may have thought that, that is the opponents, that Christ was Jesus' last name, but you know better than that. The Lord's name, Yeshua, in the Hebrew or Jesus in the New Testament Greek, uh, means God Savior. That's what Jesus means. Okay, uh, the word Lord goes back to the special. Uh, theological term for God translated with all capitals, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It's the uh, name that emphasizes God's personality and the fact he's entered into this covenant to make people savable through the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the term here that's most important for us now is this one. Christ looks like that in Greek. What's, what's that? Somebody say an X. It's not an X. That's a key. That's a CH, you know. It looks like an X, right? But it goes back to the Hebrew term, uh, Meshua. In fact, uh, Jesus, the Messiah in Hebrew Aramaic is, uh, Yeshua HaMashiach. Uh, Mashiach is the term that, uh, is found in Psalm uh, 2 for Jesus, predicts his coming. And when you put that in Greek, it's Christ. And that's the term, apparently the, the early Christians were using so much, and it's on their lips so much, their enemies, their opponents, in this very immoral secular city, uh, tagged them with a label they thought was almost profane. You know, Christian, all you want to talk about, Christ, 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 Christ. Uh, and we've all heard the, the word Jesus or Jesus Christ or Jesus H. Christ. I've heard a lot of creative cussing with the Lord's... And, you know, when they know you're a preacher, hey, Devin uh, Wanzer has played golf with Jamie in Tulsa a few times. I've heard, uh, according to Jamie, that Devin's a good golfer. He hits it 10,000 miles off the tee. And I've told Jamie a million times not to exaggerate like that. But, um, yeah. Now, um, it's funny, uh, Devin, because before Jamie joined Cedar Ridge, uh, I went up there one time for a couple of days, and we went to a public golf course. There's nothing wrong with public golf courses, but Cedar Ridge is 
a great track, you know. But, um, yeah, we're, I've told the story, but I'll get the long version short. The two of us are going to play golf in an afternoon. And so, because they want to force them to go, they put us with a random pair of guys. And I've got my OSU hat that says dad on it. Okay. So these guys are like 35 years old we're playing with and pretty cool customers, pretty good golfers too. And, uh, as you know, when you play, when men play golf with men they don't know, sooner or later, they each ask each other what they do for a living, you know. And uh, Jamie loves that because uh, uh, he's seen a lot of people didn't know I was a preacher. When they find out I'm a preacher, they get nervous or they get upset or whatever. So he's just, he loves stuff like that. So he's kind of just smiling, can't wait for it. And I'm not making this up. Uh, this one guy in particular had big red hair, a lot of red hair, uh, and uh, real loud and brash and was hitting the ball really good. I mean, like uh, he really played really nice for four, four five, six holes. And uh, and we were playing pretty fast, which is great. But we get on this tee, and we got to wait for a minute. And uh, the guy with the red hair said, okay, Jamie, uh, I'm uh, whatever. Uh, what do you do for a living? And he, I'm a, an accountant. I do this and that. And then he said, and hey, Dad, because I got this hat that says Dad on it. I'm not his dad. And Jamie was just laughing. He said, I forgot to mention. There's a joke about uh I did that on purpose. That's actually, I don't have time to explain the other joke. But listen, uh, when the guy got around to asking Jamie who he was and what he did and what I, what I was, what I did, uh, this guy had cussed like a sailor for all five or six holes, and he's hitting it good, and he's putting. What's he got to cuss about? But it's just blankety-blankety-blankety-blank, Jesus hates Christ to punctuate his sentences and stuff. And so this is why Jamie's just standing there saying, I'm going to count it, and looking at me like... You're next. <laughs> and it was it was pretty bad. Now, I grew up with a guy, a sailor. I worked uh, construction, and he cussed pretty bad. I've, I've heard all the words. I know what they all mean. But I try not to use them, especially at elders' meetings. But uh, and there are reasons. We do a message on that. But anyway, uh, Jamie's just waiting for this, and he goes, Okay, Dad, what do you, for, what do, you do for a living? And I you know, you almost have to apologize. You know, well, I'm a pastor. And... You know, nowadays, so many people are so secular, they don't care. They're probably glad they cussed in front of you. But this guy, like, swallowed his gum. And he kind of, and I don't see red and green, but I could tell he was changing colors. And he started shaking a little bit. And he go, I'm, I'm sorry, man. I've got, you know, and it's like, I said, don't apologize to me. But uh, no kidding. Like, I think he topped his next tee shot. Uh, he just... For the like the rest of the round, man, he's really hacking it up. So, but my point is, when this title was given to the Christians in Antioch, it was intended to be uh, an insult. It was a cuss word, probably, uh, in their minds, and yet it was hung on us, and it stuck, in part, because Christians have historically loved being tall, uh, called Christians, right? Now. Uh, actually, before that, uh, they were, Christians tend to be called Nazarenes. Why were they called Nazarenes? Yeah. And in the Arab world, that term is still hung on them, and, uh, the first letter, the first letter of Nazarene in Arabic looks almost like an open O, and in places like Syria and, 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 and uh, Iraq and other places like that, the bad guys will put that big first word, letter of Nazarene on the front door of Christians to encourage the bad guys to beat them up, kill them, steal their stuff, and that kind of thing. But, you know, this label was given uh, uh, to us uh, in a combat situation. It was intended to be an insult, but for 2,000 years, Christians have embraced it uh, as a badge of honor, and I think we should still do so. I mean, uh, the fact that some of these trendy evangelical, new evangelical leaders are coming up with trendier terms and they don't like the term Christian bothers me because, you know, some people, James Mitchell, Mike Palovic, might be able to be cool and be a Christian, but being a Christian should not make us look cool to a secular world. I mean, you don't have to be socially clumsy. Uh, In my day, wearing white socks, I should have wore white socks today just to to make a point, but back in my day, the worst thing you could do in high school was wear white socks with anything except athletic apparel, you know. Uh, now the rules are off there, but that's cultural. Who cares about that? But you don't have to be socially clumsy. Somebody like Debbie Corbin, very, 
very attractive lady, very trendy, very stylish. Nancy Postlewaite, very stylish. But they're believers. You know, you don't have to go out of your, you don't have to look like you just got off a stagecoach, you know, and wear a bonnet, uh, to be spiritual. Uh, so you don't have to go out of your way to be clunky. Uh, I don't like comb-overs either, people. That's all I've got. So I'm, I'm stuck, you know. But, uh, living a biblical Christian life is probably gonna make us look obnoxious to the world. Now, we don't have to be socially obnoxious, personally obnoxious, but I think we ought to embrace that as a badge of honor. And, um, I mean, it's unbelievable. Uh, there are these, these people, you probably heard of some of their names, that said, you know, Christian has been misunderstood, and, there's, and look at all the church ladies that are stricter than God, and look at all the people like the KKK that claim to be Christians. We need to get rid of that term. It's, it's culturally irrelevant. Uh, and the first guy said, just call me a follower of Jesus or Jesus follower. And, you know, that's, that's okay. That's not too bad, you know. But then the next guy said, this guy's in Washington State, I don't want to be called a Christian or a follower of Jesus because that offends people. I mean, I love the Lord, but like, I don't want anybody to know about it. So just call me a seeker of truth. When I meet someone, I'm just a seeker of truth. Let's go back to follow Jesus. Gandhi, who was, as you know, was a uh, secular Hindu Indian nationalist in the 20th century, he claimed to be a follower of Jesus. <laughs> you know? He would never use the term Christian. That's too specific. But he used that. That's generic enough for him. He's good with that. That sounds still comparably okay with me. Seeker of truth, now, and, and the latest one uh, from a guy who got defrocked and lost his pulpit and now is trying to build his church back up. How do these guys do this? He says, don't call me a Christian. Don't call me a follower of Jesus. I'm just a lover of all things. Now, I'm really Christian, but I don't want anybody to know. We want to go undercover, be cool, pull your shirt tail out, you know, and and uh, draw a crowd, and it's weird. Uh, for me, you know, I'm not saying every Christian that, Changes those terms is necessarily evil or terrible or whatever. But what's your motivation? If you're just trying to be cool, uh, who are you trying to be cool with? The girls? What level of girls, you know? For me, I'm just trying to impress the 17, 80-year-old girls now, you know? So they like the term Christian, so it's not a problem. Uh, the title of Christian has been embraced by believers for 2,000 years. I think of my friend Tut Kong from Sudan, who I knew from Jordan. And, you know, he's probably dead now because of all this stuff happening in Sudan the last couple of years. But they embraced this term, man, and, and they knew it was a cuss word used against them. And here in America, we all want to be cool, and, and it's all about being cool, so let's just come up with a cooler term that people like out in the world. Um, not good. Not good. So I would say, hey, uh, the term Christian was laid, was, was laid on us in Antioch, but it means somebody who's a believer in the Christ. And I've got the in all caps. There's only one Christ. Okay. There's only one anointed one who's the issue and issuer of eternal life. What, what is so great about Jesus that he's the issue, the issue? Well, he's the incarnation of God. Start there. Lived a perfect righteous life. And he died on the cross for our sins. The moral debt, the Michelle Franks, and Debbie McCoy and Brad McCoy owed God because of our sin. Jesus Christ died and paid for with his substitutionary atoning sacrifice on the cross once for all. And then his literal bodily supernatural resurrection validated it. There's, a lot of people claim to be ways to God. Only Jesus claimed to be God and then proved it with a literal resurrection. Right. And because of who he is and what he's done, he's the issue. He is the Christ. Uh, I could use a lot of labels for me, but one of the most important, if not the most important, is Christian. And I'm not going to punt that away. And I embrace uh, the insult that it attracts, including places, some of the places I'm at during the regular week, uh, you know, between middle of August and, and May, for some of the shoulders I rub in that situation. Uh, I embrace that label. And if people... Don't like Christians because they had a, but they went to some super legalistic, messed up church when they were kids. I'm going to say, Savannah, don't punt that label away. Let them see what biblical Christianity looks like as lived out in your life. And it's an attractive thing. So rather than punting these important symbolic labels away, I think we ought to embrace them. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. 
Father, we've been talking about the importance of the way we think and label things. We think about the history of this very precious title that ought to be precious to every believer in Jesus. And uh, for the sake of, I don't know, market share, some of these cats are punting it away and coming up with very generic, misleading, uh, non-communicative uh, kind of terminologies. I pray that everybody in this room who's believed in Christ is going to want to wear this title with honor and live it out in a biblical way, in a stylish, uh, relevant way, but in a way that will be uh, light and salt in a culture that needs it so desperately. I pray for anyone here this morning who's not, from the depth of their heart, said, Lord Jesus Christ, I believe in you. I'm a sinner. I've broken my own standards, much less yours at my worst. I can't fix it by being more religious or trying to be nice to people. Uh, and you're the only one who can. I believe you died to pay my sin debt. And you rose again from the dead. And I want to have forgiveness and eternal life. And I trust you for it. I receive you as my Savior. Uh, open hearts to believe. And for most of us who have believed, let us realize that the history and the symbolism and the substance of this title is way too important for us to punt away in an effort to be cool. We need to be relevant. We need to connect with our culture where they are. But forgive us for trying to water down things that really, really are important and have great substance behind them. Uh, we thank you for uh, this beautiful morning, beginning of a new week. The very first significant thing we do in the first hours of the first day of this new week you're giving us is to gather all over the city, all over this globe as Christians to worship our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I continue to pray for Tommy and his need and the timing of whatever procedure they might do. For him, we pray for uh, our kiddos skating. Pray that we know uh, hospital visits as a result of the skating or the swimming today, but that the kids can just uh, have a great time with one another and Realize you don't have to do anything illegal or immoral to have a lot of fun with other Christians. I thank you for each one who's here. I pray your blessing on all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.